everyone to episode 77 of some like it's got part of the media plug podcast network i'm your host scott shelton and on this week's episode of the podcast we are ringing in a new year and a new decade of movies for that matter by starting with guy ritchie's follow-up to the live action remake of disney's aladdin last year the gentleman before we get to that however with me as always i have my co-host scott harvey scott i thought i'd be asking today about I don't know who you had to win the Super Bowl or what you thought at the Grammys last night or even how your team's mock trial tournament went this weekend. But no, uh, instead, obviously, a different, much more tragic event, I think, has kind of swallowed the public consciousness, which is, of course, the death of Kobe Bryant. But all that having been said, how are you doing today? Yeah, you know, I'm good. Uh, had, it was, had a really good weekend, as you alluded to there, uh, doing mock trial um, in, in Baltimore. Um had a really fun time. Teams performed pretty well um, for our pre-regionals tournament. Um, and then, of course, like you said, yesterday, right as our last round was about to start, um, started hearing the news. Um, and yeah, you know, I was not like the hugest Kobe Bryant fan or anything, but I really just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Um, just because, you know, it's so shocking and someone who is uh, such a giant in the public eye. Um, someone who you would consider to be invincible almost um, to see them lose their life to this type of tragedy at such a young age. Um, it's, it's crazy. Um, and, and it's really sad, obviously, uh, for his family with losing a daughter as well. And yeah, you know, before I, I came down to record they're they're showing his last game on ESPN right now um, and just sitting there watching it and realizing like, he's gone. It's just, it's a crazy experience. Um, and you know, he's someone who meant something to, to, uh, you know, millions of people. So it's a very significant event. And, and, you know, one of those where you'll, you'll always remember where you were when you heard the news. Yeah. I, I was just getting back from actually seeing bad boys for life yesterday. I got back to my apartment, I like went to the bathroom and I came out and like checked my phone as I walked out of the bathroom and just kind of, it felt like time just kind of froze as I read the, mm -hmm. the tweets because um, obviously just Twitter is the fastest way to distribute news, especially that kind of news. Uh, so I saw it there first before, you know, any sort of news updates that happened on CNN or whatever apps. And yeah, I just kind of stood there stunned. And my girlfriend was like, well, what's wrong? Like, what's wrong? I'm just like, this doesn't mean anything to you because you don't follow sports at all. But, you know, Kobe Bryant uh, had, had died. And I agree. I, I mean, oh, go ahead. I can say even if you don't follow sports, I feel like he transcended all of that. And, and, you know, people who, who don't follow sports that closely, were still coming out and tweeting condolences and, and everything in recognition of who he was. So he, he, you know, he's one of those types of figures. Yeah, no, he, he really was that kind of icon and, and the kind of person who for all of his fame and, and notoriety was always someone who felt super involved. I mean, you talk about retiring, you know, I, I guess it was two or three, three years ago now or four years ago now, even. And he was, still constantly in the public space, both in basketball and just in pop culture, uh, do, doing things and, and supporting the causes that he supported. And yeah, it feels surreal. I mean, surreal was the word that I used to describe it when I was talking with you. And I don't think that surrealness has has ceased either. I, I still feel that way. Obviously, I you know got, I went to work today and uh, was distracted by that for a good chunk uh, of, of the day. But when you sit back and you have the quiet moments, my mind definitely is has reflected back back to that. And uh, I mean, yeah, obviously Kobe and, and his daughter Gigi were on board the flight, but you know, the other, you know, there was at least one other family. Yeah. We still don't know the identity of the four other people because there was nine total people uh, that, that died and, and no one survived the crash. But uh, yeah, the fact that another, what, another father, mother and daughter died and, yeah. and four other people that we you know haven't been- Leaving there. behind two children, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. But uh you know, we'll, we'll try to, to to put that behind us for the time being and, and sink ourselves into something that we're passionate about, but something that can definitely distract us and, and lift people up in general, not just us, in times of, of sadness, sorrow like like this. And that and that's with movies. So we will turn our attention to the star, you know, admittedly star-studded cast of Guy Ritchie's latest crime drama, The Gentleman, 
led by stars Matthew McConaughey and Charlie Hunnam, playing the American-turned-British marijuana kingpin Mickey Pearson and his right-hand man Raymond, respectively. The Gentleman starts in media race, as all good epics do, as tabloid investigator Fletcher, played by Hugh Grant, retells to Raymond a series of events surrounding Mickey's attempted sale of his marijuana empire to rival businessman Matthew Berger, played by Jeremy Strong. After things begin to go awry, when Chinese gangster Henry Golding's dry eye explodes onto the scene like a millennial firecracker, to use Fletcher's words, Mickey begins to get suspicious, and the movie rockets along on its merry way from there, with a supporting cast that also includes Michelle Dockery as Mickey's British wife, Rosalind, Colin Farrell as a local boxing gym coach, uh, just called The Coach, <laughs> and Eddie Marson as the tabloid editor-in-chief, Big Dave. Scott, did the swagger of the gentleman leave you in awe of the richness of Guy Ritchie's storytelling, or were the gentlemen pumped full of a little too much toxic masculinity for their own good? Yeah, you know, Scott, you said up top that this was Guy Ritchie's follow-up to Aladdin, which of course is is chronologically true, um, but in terms of the spirit of the uh, the movie, it's much more. It has much more in common with um, some of the movies that Guy Ritchie made his name off of, like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Snatch, and Rock and Rolla. Um, you know, this this is a genre. This sort of Cockney caper is is a genre that he feels very at home at, and. Uh, you know, I think he fancies himself as maybe sort of a British answer to Quentin Tarantino with movies like this. Um, but I, I just don't think and I never have really thought that uh, his movies have really the wit or the the cool factor that that a lot of Tarantino's movies have. And, and I just don't think The Gentleman is an exception to that. You know, when I saw the trailer for this, I thought this looks like another guy, Richie, uh, you know, gangster movie and that's pretty much exactly what it is um so I, I mean you know if you like the if you like snatch if you like Lockstock, those movies that i've mentioned you're probably going to like this movie because i don't think it deviates too strongly from the formula for better or for worse i mean i think the movie the story is is decent um you know it, it has some twists and turns in there i wasn't bored really at any point in the the running time of this movie um but i was never really that engaged either um, and I think that, again, the, the screenplay, uh, it's just missing uh, the edge and the, the smarts, I guess, uh, is, is the only way to put it, um, that I think could really elevate this um, to, to the next level. I think that these characters are just a little too blunt and, uh, and vulgar at times uh, in a way that doesn't really serve the uh, the story or the the characters themselves. I think that the performances are a little bit all over the map. There's some that I like. There's some that I, you know, was kind of indifferent about. Um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, this is obviously a big change from Aladdin. That was a movie that um, had a lot of spectacle. Um, and there's probably not as much here, you know, maybe in terms of, the staging of the movie, but the cast maybe is where um, you do get a little bit of spectacle. But like I said, I think the performances are, are, are just a little bit all over the board. And maybe this is still elevated from uh, our usual January fair. Um, but this movie, these types of movies just aren't really for me. Uh, I'm just not a fan of these, these types of Guy Ritchie films. And I mean, I liked Aladdin a lot. Um, um, but, the, you know, in terms of these types of Guy Ritchie movies, I'm just not that big of a fan. Like I said, if you are a fan, I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, I don't think it's a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not for me. Yeah, you know, I am, am very honestly unfamiliar with Guy Ritchie's work. I haven't seen Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch. I think Aladdin might even have been the first Oh, that's not true. I saw, I've seen The Man from Uncle and Sherlock and the Sherlock Holmes movies. So that's not entirely true. But I haven't seen those, to, to, you know, to use your words, I haven't seen those movies that kind of are where Guy Ritchie made his name and became famous for. And so The Gentleman was kind of a, a novel I don't know, type of movie for him for me because I really, like I said, kind of, I've got Aladdin obviously from last year and then those three movies that I just talked about. And I and I liked most like all four of those movies. To be fair, I mean they're not on my favorite movies of all time list or even favorite movies from those years, but I like them. I like them, and I think Guy Ritchie does do something different and unique with the style of film. Like he, like I think to your point, he really tries to be an auteur or try tries to insert himself into that category. 
But yeah, he never really quite makes it there for me. Maybe I'd feel differently if I went back and watched Snatch and and Lockstock. I, you know, I do hear that those movies might be better than this one. Or they're they're at least as good as this. And and there are parts of this film that I actually really like. I think that you know the screenplay and the story maybe even works a little bit better for me than for you. I thought it was actually quite good. I mean, there's a point about you know half to two thirds of the way through the film where I was like, you know, I'm not really sure if this is all going to come together. For me or tonight i just don't know if, if if all these little moving parts are going to really fit together seamlessly and then by the end i thought it was really good i, I did think the screenplay was really good but man i just i just was exhausted by the the stylistic choices i guess that guy Ritchie kind of um enabled here that he chose to go about uh presenting the story that he did and you know i think the the retelling aspect of you know having hugh grant sort of retell this whole story up to the you know, point in time where the movie starts. I think that actually that storytelling uh, method always actually almost always really works for me. I think it's a good way to introduce yourself to, you know, a couple characters while also showing you everything that's happened. And then, you know, I got to the point where the kind of the past timeline meets the present timeline. And I was like, you know, I, I don't really know if this movie can really go further than what it has at that point. And by the end, I thought the screenplay and the story that Guy Ritchie was telling really worked. But man, like all the, none of these characters are likable or engaging whatsoever. Wow. Like they just, I mean, I don't know if it, I, I saw this in a pretty crowded theater. I don't know if anyone walked out and didn't come back, but I honestly wouldn't blame anyone for not walking. Like it's just, the movie's just like so offensive for the point of being offensive. I just don't even get the point really. Like, yes, I mean, we were talking before we started recording that, you know, some of the language choices might come off differently in the UK than they do in the US. But like, man, it's just, it's so vulgar and I mean, I, it's not disgusting or gross at all, but it's just like, man, that's just, it's just, it, it feels so over the top. Yeah. It's just needless shock value is really all it is. It, but I mean, when you're just using certain words so many times, like even the shock value that you weighs off, wears off at a certain point. And I think like, you know, the first few times you hear something the people in my audience were kind of giggling a little bit. And by the end, it was just like beating you over the head with a hammer raise. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how many times that, you know, he he chooses to use certain words. But, I mean, there's a couple times where they are used effectively, and I think that they do get effective laughs out, out of the audience. And I think I laughed a couple, two or three times. But when you have the sheer volume, like like a, a blind squirrel is going to find a nut, you know, every once in a while. Um, so, you know, if you use, if you use a tactic or, or a joke enough times, like one of the times, it's going to land. Um, and that's kind of the way that I felt about some of the... I don't know methods that that Guy Ritchie as a writer and this one kind of kind of used to his advantage and you know kind of switching gears and to talk about the first topic that I wanted to talk about because I think that as much as there are these big stars in this film I mean you got McConaughey, Hunnam, Hugh Grant, Colin Farrell, Michelle Dockery even who you know is very famous for Downton Abbey I just think that you know the real star of, of this film it, it is Guy Ritchie like it's his directorial style it's his writing and there's not a moment that you forget that I think during the movie and as much as this, you know, movie tries to put in front of you, these characters that are deplorable. And, and I think that is intentional, right? I don't think he's trying to glorify uh, too much of this. I mean, maybe there's a part of it that is like, Oh, look, this is fun. This is cool. This is sexy in some parts, but I don't think it's like a total glorification of, you know, these, you know, this drug Lord and, and this henchman. But one thing that I didn't really understand and, and really be able to come to terms with it, I didn't really feel like it was critiquing, the characters very much like it wasn't glorifying them but it wasn't critiquing them either and so i guess i didn't really know what the point of it was scott and i guess that's maybe my first question is can you mine some point out of all this toxic masculinity and i don't know if there's really another better way to put it than just a lot of toxic masculinity in this movie yeah no i i don't know if there's much of a point i think you know he just wants you to kind of i think it's just a piece of escapism you just go sit and watch it maybe you probably have a good time for uh, you know, an hour and 50 minutes or so. But I mean, he he's not trying to make you think about anything outside of the theater. Like he he never really has. He makes genre movies for the most part. And yes, those those can make you think too. Um, but I don't think that's what he's aiming for. Um, and, and so there, there probably isn't a point, but that may be the point for Guy Ritchie that um, he, he's not intending to do anything. And, you know, I, I didn't really take much away from it. Yeah. Well, I, I gave my thoughts on how I thought the, the, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the story, I guess, later on, but do you have any other thoughts about, you know, Guy Ritchie here as, as the screenwriter of this? Like, you know, one, one of the things that I guess I was thinking about is that like, man, how, and we'll, I'll 
I'll roll back to this when we talk about the plot as well. But like how good, like I saw a lot of potential in this one. Like how good this movie could have been, you know, with someone else who's doing a treatment of this script after maybe Guy Ritchie does the first draft or something. And you know, even Guy Ritchie as a director, I think is fine. Like there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I think most of the problems of the film that that I did have just kind of came with, you know, as much as I like about the story, some of the some of the choices in the screenwriting that I didn't like, like I talked about the use of language and things like that. So I, I don't know if you saw the same potential as me, but this is one of those films that actually, you know, may, might frustrate me more than like your average, average film, uh, just because I saw so much potential. And I'd just be curious to, to feel, to hear if you felt that way. Cause I know you feel a little bit differently about the film. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think that again, the story is, is not bad. Like I was engaged basically to, you know, to see where it was going to go um for the most part but I, it's the characters i think where the screenplay really um probably lets the rest of the movie down I, I think that like yes okay so these characters are irredeemable that's not necessarily a bad thing like again sure. i mentioned tarantino i mentioned tarantino earlier he's had some pretty you know somewhat irredeemable characters at as protagonists in his movies before i mean think about jules and vincent and uh in pulp fiction who are hitmen um but they're charming, right? Like it, it, beyond all of that, they they have a charm and they have a charisma uh, that makes you know that that makes you root for them, maybe whether you should be or not. And I mean, uh, everyone you know, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another great example. And and you know, you go along with these characters. And for me, you know, I found Hugh Grant's character kind of annoying. Oh, yeah. I wasn't really on board with Charlie Hunnam until maybe like fairly late in the movie. Mm. I think McConaughey didn't really try very hard in this movie for that. That's kind of my take on his performance. Uh, but, but also I, I think that it was just, he was miscast uh, because he's expected to like speak in the same British, like using the same British like euphemism and, and terms and stuff that the rest of the characters are using. And he's not British. He sounds like Matthew McConaughey. Uh, and it just comes out sounding really awkward and weird. And like, yeah, okay. I know that this guy, has lived in London or whatever, has lived in England. He's married to an English woman, but like that doesn't mean it sounds good. It, it, it just doesn't have like the musicality coming off of his tongue as it does coming off the tongue of Colin Farrell, for example. Or Charlie um, Hunnam. Well, I mean, Colin Farrell's not good, but Charlie Hunnam, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's probably some of the places where the script, I, I mean, I would say that the script is one of the weaker parts of the movie just because. I just felt like the dialogue kind of came in with a thud most of the time instead of like zipping and zinging, you know, like you would expect from this type of a, a caper. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And, and we can draw, we'll, we will draw a distinction a little bit later on when we, when we do switch to talk about the plot, because that's the part of the screenwriting, so to speak, that is a part of it um, that, that worked for me and less the script. But with that, might as well move on to the cast since we've already started talking about it. I mean, I kind of tagged McConaughey and Hunnam as the leads, and I think that's probably fair to say for the most part, but there's a very robust supporting cast in this as well. Henry Golding plays this um, gangster, like Chinese gangster named Dry Eye. There's Michelle Dockery, who I said, like I mentioned, plays Mickey Pearson's wife, Rosalind. Jeremy Strong plays this other billionaire businessman uh, named Matthew Berger. Uh, Hugh Grant, as you mentioned, plays Fletcher, who's this tabloid reporter. And then Colin Farrell plays this like kind of local uh, boxing coach at a, at a local boxing gym. Scott, is, did anyone stick out in a positive way? I mean, you, you talked about how McConaughey's performance didn't work for you. Hunnam took you a little bit of time to, to warm up to. Did any of these like just really pop off the screen and work for you? Yeah, I mean, Colin Farrell is great, I think. Um, he yeah. He's right at home in this type of movie. And, you know, it's a shame, I think, that we don't get more of his character because he doesn't show up until a solid, you know, 30, 40 minutes into the movie, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then his first scene, like immediately grabs you that he has inside this sort of deli type place with these, uh, you know, young kids who are trying to rough him up a little bit. And it's a, it's a really good scene. And I'm like, man, where has this character been the whole time? And, you, you know, I think that that character probably had potential to be like the, you know, the guy that you root for, maybe like the charming wise guy, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, like some of the, the Tarantino characters that I was mentioning, for example that we just didn't get enough of him, um, unfortunately. And I think I wasn't thrilled perhaps with every place that that character went by the end. Um, but I think his performance is great. Again, if, if you want to talk about the antithesis of what McConaughey 
is doing with how uncomfortable he sounds at times, you know, saying some of these British, British slang, uh, it's Colin Farrell, right? Like, you know, this, this is the type of, I'm not, and I'm not even the biggest Colin Farrell fan, but this is the type of role that, uh, he's right at home at. And, um, you know, I, I think my problem with Colin Farrell is that I found it, found him hard to, uh, to root for in some movies. And so maybe it is a good thing that this movie doesn't go all the way and ask you to, to root for this character. Uh, and instead, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's one of the wise guys. Um, and I think he plays the role really well and, you know, it's nothing new for him, but um, you know, there's a reason that uh, he's, he, he's often cast in this role and it's cause he's really good at it. Um, elsewhere. I think Jeremy strong is pretty good. Um, I think he's a nice change of pace from some of the other characters. Like, again, so many of these characters are like the, you know, cockney t- talking tough guys. Um, and that's not Jeremy Strong. Like he's a, he's a little more of a like pretty boy businessman who, um, you know, is, is involved he seems with like a whole... fish out of water, but like is yeah. kind of actually plays the character in that way. As opposed to McConaughey, who's not supposed to be a fish out of water, but mm-hmm. kind of feels a little bit when you hear him talk. Yeah, I mean he's not he's not British, right? And and they don't try to make him British or anything. But but you know he's he's turns out to be kind of a conniving character, you know, just like the rest of them are. And uh, so I like that you you have that change of pace with this character, and that it's not just uh, feeling like you're you're watching several, feeling like you're watching riffs on the same character with like Charlie Hunnam and Colin Farrell and Hugh Grant, um, all of whom are. Okay, different, but there, you know, you can point to a lot of similarities. I think between those characters as well. So, if I had to point to like the high performers from the cast, uh, those would probably be the one. I think Henry Golding is fine. Again, he's not given a whole lot to do here, um, and I don't know that I found him like as intimidating, maybe as they wanted him or this character to be. Um, so, yeah, it, it, like I said up top, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. There's a lot of good performances or per- performers here, but I'm just not sure that all of them were given as much to do as they should have been. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with with you know what you were saying about you know it takes me a little while to warm up to Charlie Hunnam. I do ultimately think that I I like his character, uh, and and I wasn't sure I was going to end up there, but yeah, Hugh Grant, like as much as I've liked him and some of the stuff that he's done recently, uh, I mean he didn't really do any. I guess he didn't really do any movies last year, but I, I did really like uh, a very English scandal. I thought he was really good in that. But man, the, this character, I was just like, dude, just shut up. Like, stop talking. Just get off the screen. We don't need you. You're not doing anything for me. Like, I know that, I mean, obviously Hugh Grant is very, very British, but I mean, he was like, Guy Ritchie just took him aside before he went on the screen. and was like, dude, your accent dialed up to like 17 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And then do that. It's a... It's a very like non-Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant role. So I think that he just tried to, he, he was, he, uh, you know, this is not the type of role that he gets to play very often. So I think he just decided that he's going to go all the way with it. Yeah. And and this whole, I mean, and whether it's because of the exaggerated accent or specifically how this character was written or both, like, man, it just felt super homophobic. Like that role, I mean, that, that entire role just came off as super homophobic to me. Yeah, um, the, yeah, the fact that he's constantly like hitting on Charlie Hunnam's character too. I mean, yeah, I don't think that that's a that's an unfair criticism. Yeah, no, to me, uh, yeah, that that was the part that I just found most. I mean, rep- repulsive is almost too strong of a word, but I think it, it just about got there by by the end of it, to be honest. But for me, you know, I totally agree. Colin Farrell is the standout. I I am someone who likes Colin Farrell when Colin Farrell is allowed to be Colin Farrell. Like I didn't think that you know Fantastic Beasts and you know he played Percival Graves you know, the detective or whatever in that one. I did not think that was that was a good role for for Colin Farrell. But, I mean, I really enjoy him in things like you know, the Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Lobster, which are both Yorgos Lanthimos. But I feel like he's allowed to be, uh, he, he's allowed to kind of be off the, off the chain on those roles and be the character actor that I think, you know, deep down he really is. And, and I don't know if he's, he's not the same level of movie star as a Brad Pitt, but someone who is often, I feel like, portrayed as more of a movie star than, uh, than a character actor, but for me, I mean, he's just kind of like all in on the character and should be a character actor. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to him being the Penguin, of course, in, mm-hmm. in Matt Reeves' Batman movie coming out. Is it next year? Is it 2021? I think it is. 2021, yeah. Yeah, and he's also in Koganada's, uh movie coming out later this year. After, after Yang, yeah. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that because I, I do like Colin Farrell and I really liked him in this role. For Henry Golding, that actually, that performance worked really well because I think that Henry Golding was perfectly cast 
I don't think that this character is meant to be intimidating. I think this is supposed to be a character who wants to be intimidating but isn't. And it was good to see something very different from Henry Golding when what we've gotten so far is you know, primarily crazy rich Asians and then a couple of things here and there, but none of, nothing like this. It just showed me a little bit more range. I want him to find the role next that allows him to show a full range in one performance. But I feel like I, I can see that he has that. I don't think it's going to come later this year in Snake Eyes where he's, uh, I believe he's the lead in that in that one. But um, I mean, I, I think that he will do, he will continue to get these kind of roles. He's a very castable uh, talent now, I think. I mean, he's showing that again and again. And I, th I don't think this hurts him too much. I think that he is he is good for this role. Uh, other than that, like Michelle Dockery, man, again, like, I mean, we talked about it being like, the, sorry, Hugh Grant's character being homophobic. And I know that they're like trying to do something with this character of Rosalind, but man, they don't do it right for me. Like, that is just weird. It is a really weird role and kind of like the way that I think ultimately the character of Fletcher comes off as homophobic. I think this character comes off as a little sexist especially the way they treat this character. Maybe maybe not Rosalind as a character, but the way that they, you know, create this character and craft this character. I'm trying to avoid spoilers well, here, but just like certain scenes that happen in this, like, man, I, I don't know if there, if there could have been more sexist ways to portray uh, this character and things that are happening to her. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go, I personally wouldn't go that far, but I do think that th there is something, you know, they're flirting with that a little bit in the way that McConaughey's character the thing that right the, the thing that re, he reacts to so strongly the thing which like finally gets his goat um is not like anything that's going on with his business or any of that it's when um you know he, they go after his wife it's when a certain character goes after his wife yeah um and like okay yeah i guess you know that's what a that's i guess what a husband's attitude should be like but there you know it do, it does toe the line a little bit i think with what you're talking about um I just think the character was kind of a throwaway and didn't have much to do. Unfortunately, she gets like one sort of nice moment towards the end um, where she's allowed to assert herself a little bit, um, but it's kind of too little too late at that point. Yeah. I mean, she's certainly not given anything to do in my opinion. Like she still doesn't have, she has like one scene and that's it really. Mm -hmm. um, so d disappointing. Cause I actually really like Michelle doctor. I think she's great in Downton Abbey. And I thought she did really good in the Downton Abbey movie uh, last year. So I'd love to see her get more opportunities, but I just hope that they're, more nuanced than this because man especially with a movie that just utterly lacks female characters it didn't do well if it's one character that had any sort of role of significance but i think that really kind of does it for me for the casting i agree jeremy strong i mean he, he worked well for me and i think that really does round out the full the full kind of main cast there scott so we'll switch over to the plot now i had a couple things to talk about and i've kind of given my high level perspective on both of them already and would love to start with you kind of diving a little bit deeper to the extent that you have an opinion. The first is, is that, do you think that the framing of the story works? So I talked about how it starts in media race. And you get this kind of backstory almost leading up to the present point. And then of course, after that, you get the finale, you get the twist, the inevitable, you know, crime drama twists that will happen in these types of films. Scott, did it, I guess, taking it part, piece by piece here, how did those things work for you? Yeah. Again, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. I think, it is slow to start because um, like these characters have a relate, like it, it's clear that these characters know each other very well. Like the Hugh Grant and the Charlie Hunnam character, of course. Um, but it, you don't really understand how they know each other. Um, I was confused for a little bit on like w even what Charlie Hunnam's relationship was to Matthew McConaughey's character, because it takes a little bit into the story before you ever actually seeing those see those characters interact and it and kind of realize oh Charlie Hunnam is kind of like the you know right hand man for um for, he's kind of like the heavy for yeah. uh, for Matthew McConaughey's character um, and so that was that was confusing me a little bit um, and but yeah but at the same time like once it, you know, once it gets going once I figured out who all the characters were and what their relationships were to each other and um, what was going on, like what, what, you know, what McConaughey was trying to do. Um, I think I, I liked it ultimately. Um, I think that, um, you know, it, it builds some nice suspense. And I, I think that you get something up out of the fact that Hugh Grant's character is an unreliable narrator. Right. And I think that, um, yeah. the whole movie is kind of building towards the fact that maybe there's more to the story than, what uh this fletcher character is letting on 
And I mean, I don't know that I was fully satisfied with how it ultimately came to a head, um, but I, I do think it's an effective framing device. And um, again, once I once I got accustomed to it, I, I think it worked pretty well after about 30 minutes or so. Yeah, I definitely liked the framing of it in terms of it, whether it coming together and in, in the finale and stuff like, look, I thought the finale in the movie as a whole kind of didn't did enough to keep me engaged. It, it sounds like maybe I was a little bit, I definitely was never bored. And I think I might've even been a little bit more engaged than you were with everything that was going on. But it's also one of those things where like the best movies, the best of these types of movies, leave you enough breadcrumbs along the way for you to put together the story before, or, or at least look back after the twist happened and put together the whole story. This is just, like some of his screenwriting techniques, I guess the twists in this one, I don't think are foreseeable. I mean, some component of the twists maybe are foreseeable because mm -hmm. you do have little pieces of the story, but the twists themselves cer certainly aren't. And, you know, in that way, it's not the best. That being said, the twists were entertaining enough. And I think wrap up the story well enough uh, that I ultimately liked them, even if I didn't appreciate them as, as the same level as something like knives out or something like that. Right. Obviously totally different level of screenwriting there, but uh, for for me, uh, it was entertaining enough, and by the end of it, I was like, you know, to tie everything back to the discussion where it started, like, I actually think this movie was pretty frustrating because, you know, it, it doesn't reach the heights of, you know, the best storytelling ever, but there are moments where it comes, it, it starts to reach towards that, and, and it's just so weighed down by other much more negative parts of the film. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. I will say, like, I'm not sure what exactly you're, what all you're throwing in the basket of twists, but uh, there is, like, one sort of reveal that happens where I was like, well, yeah, like, that's completely obvious. Um, I mean, I, I guess we're not getting into spoilers yet. I mean, but, we can say, um, I mean, no, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the end of the yeah. Uh We can get yeah. into spoilers now. Go ahead. I mean, I, again, I don't know if you're considering this to be a twist or not, but kind of the reveal that, Henry Golding's character and Jeremy Strong's character are in no. cahoots, right? I don't, okay. Yeah, because no, I didn't find that to be surprising at all. Um, like, I, 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 I don't really know why they framed that as if it was sort of a reveal. Um, and, and so that, I mean, and, and then the fact that, even the fact that Hugh Grant, you know, it, it kind of has, knows more than he's letting on and, and you know, sell, kind of sells them out in the end. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just didn't, again, I, I, I was still entertained by the buildup to all of these um, twists, but in the end, I think I, it just sort of fizzled out for me a little bit. I, it was, it was a tad predictable I felt in the end. Um, and, and so I, I don't, th I don't know that the, the denouement really completely worked for me. Yeah, no, I, I meant twists again, kind of in that, in the air quotes you're describing. I certainly don't think the fact that, Jeremy Strong and Henry Golding's characters were working together uh, was the twist. I was thinking more like twists as in like, oh, like Matthew McConaughey set the trap for Jeremy Strong and oh, look, the Russians, they like, like the, but the, the family of Aslan. Are gonna like those are the twists that, like right. I said, are yeah. not, like they are very predictable and that like, the, of course, this is how the story is going to end, right? And so it's like not clever story development of like the best movies don't let you guess or predict what the ending is going to be, but then go back and be, oh, okay, you can put this together and see how it was going is it was going to end this way and how it all yeah. makes sense. Well, the whole Russian thing is is another example, I think, because like you see that random scene and earlier on. They and that, exactly, they wouldn't talk about that character at all if it wasn't going to happen. Right? It's like why why are we even showing this? Like, like the guy, you know, the guy, his son gets thrown out of a window or whatever, yeah. um, and but there, so like the character at that point is like irrelevant, but then they just like throw in this scene, right. Of his dad. And like, he, obviously that scene is going to come back around. So I, even I didn't really find that too surprising. I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he hides the ball well enough, perhaps. No, not at all. Not at all. All right. Scott, any other thoughts? I mean, I think that's really all I had. Uh, any other thoughts on the gentleman before we enter our wrap up phase? Yeah. there. I, I just don't think there's much more to say. Like I said, I think, if you watch the trailer, you know what you're going to know what kind of movie this is and probably whether you're going to like it or not based on that. And um, I think there are people out there who are going to like it. I mean, people seem to be enjoying it from what I see on social media and stuff. And I certainly don't begrudge you that I wanted to enjoy it more than I did. Uh, but this type of movie just isn't for me, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's actually it's Rotten Tomatoes is, is pretty high. Like, I think it's in the low 70s, which is 
Mm-hmm. It's not. It's it's respectable. It's 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 a good Rotten Tomatoes score. But the Metacritic's you know, kind of low. I think it's like fifty, um, which is yeah that kind of dichotomy. I don't think I, I don't think you see that often. Something like in the seventies on our, on Rotten Tomatoes, but then in like around fifty. I mean, usually you get like ten or more, so more points higher than that. But it's, so people are enjoying it, but they're recognizing it for its flaws. I think is what it's right. Like. I mean, it's it's a lot of like three out of four and two and a half out of four, like Rotten Tomatoes will sometimes count like two and a half out of fours as fresh reviews. And so I think that's why you're yeah, seeing the disparity between the fresh reviews. So, sometimes. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know for yeah. some, for some reason, I feel like it, like it varies. Sometimes they do count them as fresh. Sometimes they do count them as rotten, but um, yeah. regardless, I think that that explains the disparity and yeah, like I get it. This, Again, like this type of movie just isn't for everyone. And, and it's not even necessarily like the genre of the movie. Like, I mean, I, I'm fine with these types of movies, but it's Guy Ritchie's approach to these types of movies that I think sure. is what doesn't really strike a chord with. Yeah. And it's what makes him the filmmaker that he is. And to your point, that works for some people. And, and you just go back and look at Aladdin last year. It doesn't work for some people. Um, but yeah. there you go. There you go. Scott, that'll do it for uh, the discussion here. So we will enter wrap up. What was your favorite scene from The Gentleman? Yeah, so there's this whole sequence that we kind of were just talking about with Aslan, I think is the, the name of the kid, um, where with involving Charlie Hunnam's character and then sort of his, I can't remember what the the other guy's name is that's with him, the his like henchman or whatever, um, who's who's kind of yeah, there to... Bunny and, yeah. and uh, I forget the other one's name. Yeah. But anyways, and, and they're interacting with these sort of hoodlums. They've come to try and uh, re- re- recover the daughter of this, um, like, lord or something who uh, is Preston. has become, yeah, has become a heroin addict. Uh, by by the way, that subplot was really just random as well. Like they that that was not thrown together well at all. Um, I, I don't know if they were trying to make that into like a cautionary tale about drug abuse or, or what that was supposed to be, but I, I didn't really get it. But anyway, the there scene no on, tales in Guy Ritchie's films. Yeah, that's probably true. Standing alone, the scene is is pretty entertaining and you know it, it escalates obviously um a- after Charlie Hunnam's character leaves, right? And this like fight picks off between um you know the these characters and again the henchmen, I can't we can't recall their names, but Bunny um, is one of them, that's all I know. Yeah, yeah. Leading to to Aslan getting thrown out of the window, and then there's a whole chase sequence that ensues, um, and it's fun. Uh, it, you know, it's it's one of the the times in the movie where I was like, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm enjoying this more than I expected, uh, at, at least in this particular sequence. Um, and yeah, you know, the it it ends basically with Charlie Hunnam having to chase down these kid kids, or actually, I mean, really everyone having to chase down these kids who have videoed what's happened. Um, and, and recover their phones. And it, it's it's an entertaining and lively sequence. And that was kind of the point where I got on board with the uh, Charlie Hunnam character and what was going on there. So I, I would point to that one as a standout. Yeah, similarly, my favorite scene is also going to involve Charlie Hunnam, but I think the focal point being really Colin Farrell. And it's when, I, I, it's when Colin Farrell and his, I don't know, his like trainees, his boxing trainees at his gym, uh, they've like kidnapped the guy the dry eyes henchman his name's his name's fuck <laughs> which is just like hilarious fuck, fuck yeah <laughs> and uh they, they they're like looking at him in the in the trunk and uh colin farrell and um and charlie hunnam's characters have this back and forth i think it's hilarious some some of the best uh funny moments in the script and then fuck just runs out of the car like jumps out of the car runs away, jumps off, jumps off the, this bridge on his train tracks and just immediately gets hit by a train. Um, yeah. Which the shock factor of that was actually funny uh, for a change in this film. And I just think a lot of the, a lot of my favorite scenes from this are, you know, Colin Farrell and someone else, right? I think even the scene that you already talked about earlier, Colin Farrell and these kids, like his first scene getting jumped by these kids in this like restaurant, this like, I don't know, like di- like diner or deli kind of restaurant and that whole scene, the model, like he goes on, the interaction that he has with him is hilarious. So just a lot of the scenes with Colin Farrell really work for me. Yeah, I agree. He's the best character. Yeah, let's put a bow on it, Scott. What are you giving the gentleman? Uh, I'm going to go with a 5.1. Ultimately, there are some enjoyable elements to the movie. Yeah. Um, 
But it's again, it's a guy Richie Cockney caper. You know what you're going to get. And unfortunately for me, that's just not something that I generally enjoy. But give it a chance if you like this sort of thing. Yeah, this is one of those that I saw a lot of potential and it really was weighed down. I've said all this already, so I don't need to repeat myself. And so kind of going near you, right in the middle, a little bit higher, but a 5.5 will do for me. And so we start the next decade with uh, a very middle of the road bar. A thoroughly average film. That's <laughs> yeah. probably about right, honestly. And, you know, what, what better way to, to set expectations for the rest of the decade than right in the, right in the middle where you'd want your expectations to be going into to all movies going forward. So there That's you go. True. All right, that should do it for our discussion of The Gentleman. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be going through an awards update for you. I honestly can't even remember if we did an awards update last week. Well, we, I think we did do an awards update, but we also had the TV series episode in the middle since our last time we recorded a review. So we'll do another awards update because we've had a lot of Guild Awards. We have a few to talk about here and see how that's shaping up for the Oscar race because voting, I believe, starts shortly after the release of this podcast. I think. So we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, like I mentioned before we went to break, we've had several award shows, more than one, more than two. I think we even have three worth talking about. That is uh, all Guild Awards shows. That's going to be the SAG Awards, the PGA Awards. That's the Producers Guild Awards. The first being, of course, the Screen Actors Guild Awards. And then most recently, the Director Guild Awards. We still are going to have the WGAs, still the Writers Guild Awards to come out. I don't know how much that's going to shape the race at this point. And I think there was always an asterisk on that one because they are unlike the DGAs uh, and, the, and the SAGs. They require membership for you to be nominated. So Quentin Tarantino, who has always refused to become a member of the Writers Guild, uh, is, is not nominated, not because his movie isn't worth, I mean, worthy. I mean, I guess the Writers Guild don't have a choice about whether to, to judge his movie as worthy or not, uh, but because... Uh, he's just simply not a member. So there's obviously a, a big a big front runner in that race kind of out of the picture there. But that's not even awarded yet anyway, so we don't even need to talk about that anymore. And let's start with kind of the biggest of the three uh, that there is to talk about. That's the Screen Actors Guild Awards, Scott. I think a lot of the conversation going in, of course, was, you know, will the best actor, best actress supporting so on and so forth, will that be wrapped up by the end of the SAG Awards? And I think not to our surprise, those awards, as we already thought, are wrapped up. I mean, has anyone else even taken these awards off these people in the other award show? I don't think so. I think they have won start to finish. And I wouldn't imagine that the change for those of you who are maybe new to the podcast and haven't been following our awards coverage. That is Renee Zellweger for best actress, Laura Dern for best supporting actress, Brad Pitt for best supporting actor and Joaquin Phoenix for best actor. I think again, winning at the screen actors guild, I think confirmed something that, you know, we already suspected and kind of knew to be true. Uh, we'll see if Oscar surprises us, but I really doubt at this point. But the big surprise from the Screen Actors Guild Award, I think, and honestly, probably the best result of the award season overall, is that Parasite took home Best Ensemble Cast, the SAG Award equivalent of Best Picture, if there is a thing. Right, It's not exactly the same, because again, it's just the Screen Actors Guild Award, so they're technically just voting on the Ensemble Cast performance. But it is their equivalent of Best Picture. Scott, how big of a surprise was it to you that Parasite took home this award. And do you think this changes the picture at all? Does this make Parasite a real contender for Best Picture? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, a, it was a slight surprise for me. I wouldn't say I was shocked by what happened, but it, 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 just, it does show like the weirdness of this Best Ensemble Award, right? Because we talked about when the movie came, or when the awards came out, when the nominations came out, how some of the movies seemed to be weird choices and how, uh, you know, other movies were, would have been a better fit for an ensemble cast like Knives Out, for an, for example, or Little Women, both of which were not nominated, despite having like legitimate ensemble casts, as opposed to something like The Irishman, um, which has, you know, really three major performers and that's about it. Um, I mean, you have a few other names down there, but for I would the most say part, Stephen Graham should be thrown in there, but yeah. That's a yeah, and, and Ray Romano, perhaps, but yeah. Um, but it, you know, not probably not a true ensemble. Once upon a time in Hollywood, while it has a lot of, you know, n notable actors going down the list, they're not. They don't really have much to do, I guess, throughout the movie. Um, a lot of them just pop up for one scene or so, and it's it is again, it's really about, oh, Brad Pitt, Leo, 
I mean, and Margaret Qualley, who probably has the third most screen time, like probably has even more screen time than Marco Robbie does. But, you know, even just between the four of them. Um, and, and so it, it just seemed like from the nominations that maybe they were just voting, well, here's the five best movies or whatever. And this is what we're going to vote for for best ensemble. But now when you see like what won the award, you have to wonder, like, you know, were they actually voting for what had the best ensemble? Because like Parasite did have the best ensemble of the nominees. Um, despite having no individual acting nominations. And to, to give you a little preview for the uh, the article this week in the Some Like It Scott newsletter that we're going to be putting out, um, I, I had some issues with the fact that, you know, the cast of Parasite were getting a standing ovation when they came on stage, despite the fact that, you know, the people giving them a standing ovation were the very people who could have given them a nomination with a vote and chose not to do so. Um, and so it's, it's all fake, just like the rest of award season, but yeah, like all um, the HFPA members saying, Oh, I voted for you, Greta. I don't know exactly why you didn't get into best director. You're, but you're really just, no, you didn't get, you didn't vote for me. You're really just reciting my article right now, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's all fake. Like I said, but I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I was very happy about this. Uh, I think in general, the SAG Awards were enjoyable to watch some of the best speeches of awards season. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix had a great speech recognizing all of the fellow nominees. Brad Pitt had a really funny and like genuine sounding speech. Laura Dern had a nice speech as well. It, it was it was a good award show and it shows what award shows can be. I think when actors stick to talking about the craft, right, and talking about um, the people that inspire them and talking about the art that they've created which is what the purpose of these award shows is right to to celebrate art and so it, it you know when when they're talking about art um it sounds genuine because it is genuine and i think that's you know what made this show more enjoyable to watch but as far as parasites oscar chances go yeah i mean i i've thought from the beginning that it it still has a chance in there right with, with the whole foreign language film um, again, the Golden Globes not nominating the foreign language film for best picture or anything. I think there was there's sort of an unknown factor with Parasite of, you know, how well is it actually being considered in the eyes of, uh, you know, Oscar voters or awards voters in general. And I think this shows, yeah, this movie is firmly in the conversation It's probably firmly the number three choice right now. I would say like if, the if there's the top three right now for best picture, it's 1917, it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's uh, it's Parasite. I think all three of those movies have a chance to win. Um, and like I've said before, I think Parasite will benefit from the preferential ballot because I just don't know that there's that many people out there who, you know, straight up dislike this movie. Whereas something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or even 1917, have been more divisive, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't know. You seem to know more about than I do about this whole divisiveness of 1917. We'll get to that in a second because we will talk about explicitly about 1917. But for me, before we do, as sort of a teaser for these other two award show, and you know how Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has not been successful at the at any of the award shows, really, Scott. Like at what point are we still kind of riding a wave of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just simply because it was an early favorite. It, you know, it did win the best motion picture musical comedy at the Golden Globes when all the Guild Awards are pointing towards something different. I know the Writers Guild aside, because there's a different, it's a different beast over there. But you know, the SAGs, the PGAs, and the DGAs, none of them recognizing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is it really still a number two for you on Best Picture right now, or do you think that uh, its stock is fading a little bit? Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, I think that it is number two. Um... But I thought it was number one, right? Like I, for for a while, I think that we felt that it was it was the number one choice. Um, and you know, when I initially filled out my Oscar predictions right after the nominations came out, I picked One Spot of Time in Hollywood. I thought this was going to win um, Best Picture. But now I'm not so sure. the The momentum seems to be in 1917's favor after you know the PGAs and uh, and Sam Mendes also winning at the DGAs. Um, I think that this is the favorite now. I, again, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Parasite win, or even Joker, I guess, is still still technically in the hunt, probably. Though yeah. fading fast, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but I think there, I, I think there is genuine suspense in this um, category. There will be genuine suspense. We talked about how the acting races are pretty much decided. I think that's not the case with Best Picture. Even if 1917 maybe is starting to 
distance itself a little bit. I think, you know, th there is still the element of surprise there and the screenplay and director Oscars are also going to be something to watch. Um, so I absolutely think this movie has a chance. I, I, you know, I don't really know what has led to it maybe falling quite off at the top of the pedestal. Maybe it's just that more people have seen 1917 now, more, more people are seeing it um, as we get, you know, further into awards season. Um, but, you know, I, I think you, you still can't discount that Golden Globes win. I think that is significant. Um, and the Critics' Choice obviously also was, you know, a big win, big winner for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so I, I think it's still firmly in the race. Yeah, the, the only reason why I discount the Critics' Choice Awards a little bit is just that there's zero overlap in those voting bodies. And really, the Critics' Choice Awards ultimately means nothing for the Oscars, whereas the guilds, I mean, these people are literally voting in both. Um, but no, I think I think that's a fair point. I did I did leave out the fact that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was successful with with the Critics Choice Awards, and ultimately, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has the word Hollywood in its name, and there's nothing that does if the Oscars is not Hollywood, right? So you can't count it out completely. But I agree. I think after I watched, uh, I mean, first off, of course, 1917 at the Golden Globes and getting those surprise <laughs> wins, uh, both in the Best Motion Picture Drama category and also for Best Director. And then seeing it win, you know, best feature at the PGAs and best director for Sam Mendes again at the DGAs, it, it really does feel like this is the clear favorite right now for best picture. Again, as much as there ever really is a clear favorite in the best picture category, I mean, there was clear favorites last year, I think, I think as well. Um, but many people went up and have said different movies were the clear favorites last year. And yeah. uh, maybe that isn't happening necessarily as much this year. But I think that, yes, it is the clear favorite. But again, if, if Parasite, especially, or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if it did end up winning uh, Best Picture ultimately on the night of the Oscars, I don't think that would be surprising to me. I think I would be shocked just because, you know, Parasite won Best Picture, but it wouldn't be surprising for respect because I think you're right. I think Parasite's one of those movies that it's never really going to be lower than four or five on anyone's list. Um, it may not be on enough people's number one, but it, uh, but again, like it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the we're we're not going to do an explainer on on the preferential ballot, uh, but it does have to hit a certain like er, like to to be considered in terms of the runoff. Yeah. You have to hit a certain number of number one votes. Yeah. But you're right. It doesn't it doesn't need to be the most fa like everyone you know the most people's favorite movie. To your point. Um. So any anything can happen with that preferential ballot. Is and I mean, Parasite is a good enough movie that it will be number one on some people's lists. So I'm not too concerned yeah. about that. So it, you're right. I think the the race is up in the air still and certainly compared to the act the acting races i think uh th this one is wide open and i think some of the technical categories although not as wide open maybe i think those are going to be some interesting ones to watch because i think there are some very well crafted movies this year of course 1917 is one of them but ford versus ferrari also in the conversation there as well and then to your point exactly both the screenplay categories i think are really interesting um and, and ones to watch because i think that you know you might be able to find to make a determination pretty early on if some of these, you know, longer shots, so to speak, really have a chance at all. If they're not winning any awards early in the night, they're probably not going to translate to any any uh, any chance of winning the big one. Yeah, no, I I think you're right about that, and I mean, I think it is comparable to last year's race on some level, right? You know, with with Parasite in there, you have to think about Roma last year. I think they're different yeah. movies. And I mean, um, also Parasite is just such a better. I mean, I loved Roma last year. I gave it a ten, and but Parasite is a much better movie than Roma. Yeah, I don't think I agree with that. I think they're on the same level for me. They're both amazing, but um, yeah. But but anyway, like you know, we we kind of were going back and batting back and forth between is it going to be Roma, is it going to be Green Book, um, and I think you know this year. Yeah, you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is kind of the wrench in there. But, you know, if you compare it to last year with the question of is it going to be the, you know, out there foreign film or is it going to be, you know, the safer, more Oscar, uh, you know, ba Beatty flick. Last year they went with the Oscar Beatty flick with Green Book. And, you know, I think the, all signs right now are pointing to, towards them doing the same with 1917. Though, of course, 1917 is in a different league. Yeah, and, and also the fact that you're talking about how some people are have cooled a little bit on 1917. That's something that I'm a little bit less familiar with. But I did see you tweet about this, and, and you also mentioned it in your rewatch review of, of 1917, uh, whether that was last week or a week and a half ago, whatever it was. And Scott, I'm, I'm curious because I'm not seeing this, but you're also way more plugged into film Twitter than I am. Well, yeah, and, and that's I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Because to be fair, like where I'm seeing this, right, is is on film Twitter. It's It's 
a lot of, uh, you know, the, the film critics who are very active on film Twitter, who, you know, if you follow enough film Twitter accounts, you probably see their tweets popping up a lot. Um, and they're not a fan of this movie. They feel like it's a video game. They feel like uh, it's all style and no substance. Um, and that, you know, I, I've even seen, you know, some people saying this is going to be just like Green Book winning last year, which I think is crazy. But um, I think that, yes, it is divisive in that sense, in that, you know, th this subsection of, of people is is not on board with what it's doing. But there's not any, you know, there's not a lot of crossover, if any crossover there with those people and the Academy. And I think this is a movie that the Academy is, is definitely going to enjoy more, um, which generally is, generally I would say is a bad thing if the Academy is going to be enjoying a movie more than, um, than critics are generally, I would say that that's probably because the movie isn't very good. Uh, but I think that 1970 is an exception of a really good movie that I, I don't really get what critics are, are missing about this movie. Um, but for once, I, I kind of would have to go to bat for the Academy, I guess, in the end, if, um, if 1917 wins, because I think there's going to be, uh, you know, probably not on the same level, but there is going to be some backlash on film Twitter. If 1917 wins again, maybe on the to the same degree uh, to some extent that there was when green book won, but I just don't think that that's, that's fair. Right. Like, I mean, no one is, is rougher on the Oscars than I am. No one thinks they're more of a sham than I do. Um, and but you were the, yesterday. Yeah, that's true. I did. But at the end of the day, right. When, when, when the Oscars pick the right movie and it, it happens every now and then, um, you know, I, I think you have to, I, I can still remove myself and say, well, you know, they, they got it right. Like they, they got it right when they pick spotlight as best picture, for example. And, uh, you know, while, while I would personally go with little women for best picture, while to me, that is the best picture of the year. Like I would not have any qualms with 1917 winning this award. Certainly it's an interesting debate that's going on. Probably, uh, like you said, pr probably a lot of people don't even re realize that it is a debate because I think you have to be pretty plugged in on on film Twitter to even tap into some of the the dissenters. Uh, but it is there. Whether it will affect the Academy of Voter vote or not, who knows? But it is there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not confident that it will, but I'm also probably not a good judge of that either. I just think that last year, I mean, the the Green Book conversation was so it, it felt like it. it it transcended film Twitter. Like, I felt like Twitter was having that conversation right beyond it. Like anyone who watched the Academy, not anyone, obviously, but like a lot of people were like, I can't believe they chose this movie for this. Like it's uh, the, the, the message that they're going for is achieved better by at least one other film in the category. Um, and so why would you choose this one over that one? Whereas like, you know, I mean, 1917, it's a technical marvel. <laughs> it also has a solid, like, 15 to 20 percent on Rotten Tomatoes and 10 or 12 Metacritic points on Green Book as well. So even the divisiveness among critics seems less than than what you had last year with Green Book. And I think if you watch those two films and you put them next to each other, I think you'd understand why. I think, look, like I, I thought 1917, I mean, 1970 was my favorite film of the year. Um, but I do understand some like why it might not work for some people. I disagree with that, but I could understand why uh, some some people. Frankly, I don't. <laughs> Look, like I understand that people look for people. People may have an experience they don't like it. They don't like it very much because, for whatever reason, it doesn't make them feel what they wanted to feel. Maybe that was the point, but uh, they then retroactively go back and, and look for things that they think that are like faulty in the movie. Like I, I can see why people point at these things as things that are wrong, but I just disagree. I disagree with them, uh, which is you know, which is whatever, right? And I think. That's less so in the critics division than it is in other divisions. But Parasite's one of those things where I've been saying it all year uh, since I, well, all year is in all 2020 since I saw 1917, <laughs> um, that 1917 might be my favorite movie. But, 19, but Parasite's the best movie of the year. And so I'll be happy with uh, either one of those. If Little Women were to pull off a shock win, I'd be content enough with that as well. I don't think there's too I would make you be content. Yeah, you can't make me do anything. I think you want to be less content if it wins. Um, and I think that they're just few, there's only one, maybe two bad choices for best picture for me this year. So that's more. If than if if Little Women somehow won best picture, I honestly don't know what I would do. It would it would be like stand for the Academy forever. My my reaction would be like, 
with what it will be the next time Tennessee beats Alabama in football. Like that's the level of upset we're talking. I mean, pro- probably true. Probably true. I think you should be con- content enough with the best adapted screenplay. Yeah, no, that's that is one hundred percent. I'm all in on on best adapted screenplay. If it doesn't win that, well, it it probably it might win for costume design as well. Although I don't know. I mean, that one suit in Joker. Can you believe that suit that they gave him? Oh, it's just oh. so crazy. <laughs> all right, Scott. I think we can end the episode on that, and you know. Hopefully I'll spare us and go at the last minute out of this podcast before this. But uh, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? I, I rattled off a bunch of different things to, at the beginning. You know, who, who do you have to win the Super Bowl? We'll start with that. I, I'm going. It's a it's a close call. I think this is going to be a good game. It's going to be definitely different from last year's game, which was very defensive. I don't think that that's going to be the case here. You have two pretty explosive offenses. But I do think it's going to come down to the defenses. And I just think that the 49ers have a stronger defense. The Chiefs offense, you know, you can, you can make the argument that they're sort of um, defense proof in a way, right? That they're just going to find a way to score points uh, regardless of what defense they're playing against. Um, but, I, you know, they have to be able to stop the 49ers. And the, the 49ers have put up uh, big numbers on the scoreboard many times this season, including last week in the – um, in the NFC championship, they, they blew the Packers away. Um, and so I'm going with, uh, Kyle Shanahan to right his wrong from the, the Super Bowl, the, the famous 28 to three game, uh, and to win a Super Bowl as head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, I'll take the other side. I mean, there's plenty of good forces in football, but nothing beats Patrick Mahomes in the second quarter specifically. So uh, San Francisco better batten down the hatches in the second quarter because Mahomes is averaging like four or five touchdowns in the second quarter. Uh, obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but he's he's really had some absolute monster second quarters, uh, including last week where he threw four touchdowns. Uh, and yeah. then earlier this year where he threw five. So there you go. And that is something you can't discount, right? The, the fact that the Chiefs have – you know, gotten themselves, dug themselves into holes at the start of both of these games. And it, it hasn't, it hasn't even mattered, right? Like they're not going to be phased by falling behind really at any point in the game. And that's because they have the type of offense, which can erase a 21 point lead in eight minutes, minutes. or something crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I, I also think that Kansas city, although not always displaying it recently and the 49ers, this is true of some extent well, which is why I think it's hard because I think both these teams, both, both sides of the ball for these teams are really polished. But, you know, like low-key, sneaky, like one of the best defenses in the NFL, like the second half of the season, uh, the, the the Chiefs were. Um, so, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I I like Patrick Mahomes a lot. Um, I was bummed that they, they didn't make it to the Super Bowl last year. And I hope Andy Reid ends his curse because he has a bad playoffs curse on him. So. Yeah. No, I, I don't think like I don't have strong feelings of like wanting one team to win really badly or wanting one team to lose really badly. So uh, I think there are good storylines on both sides. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm excited to see how it plays out. I think this is, you know, on, on paper, this has a chance to be one of the more interesting Super Bowls in recent years. You can enjoy it as a neutral for a change. That's true. As a true neutral or perhaps a lawful neutral. I see what you did there. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarvy Dent talking about where the uh, best picture nominees are on are on an alignment chart. If you want more of that sort of uh, conversation. Yeah, I uh, I did say that earlier today. I agreed for a lot of it. I didn't agree on everything, but the most yeah, I think we can all agree. I think we can all agree that Ford versus Ferrari is the true neutral. Oh, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. That was one of the ones that I I, think, I feel like every single tweet that I saw the alignment chart and every all of yeah. them Ford versus Ferrari the true neutral. I'm like, yeah, that checks out. And Joker is chaotic evil. I think those are pretty much on point. Yeah, is that yeah? I, I again, I don't know what some of my rationale was for all of them. Uh, like I plugged in the ones that I was like pretty sure about first, right? Like I think Parasite is a, is a for me, it was a clear chaotic good. And uh, and then I think, you know, between lawful good, it, I was kind of between 1917 and Little Women, and I went with 1917. But, yeah, I, I think that maybe it doesn't fit squarely within the chaotic neutral, but I, I kind of just plugged it in there maybe as virtue of having only a couple spots left. But I, it, it works, too. I don't know. I think, I think what's going on is the chaotic neutral. I thought you had it somewhere else, but, yeah. 
I, th I thought I had it there, but I don't know. I mean, I think it makes sense as the chaotic neutral for sure, because oh, it's uh, it uh, appeals to old school sensibilities, right? In the way that like you would expect a neutral movie to, but then you have like the crazy director's flair uh, that Quentin Tarantino brings to, you know, his movies. And so I think if it would fit nicely within that category, whether I put it there or not. Where'd you put Jojo Rabbit? I don't remember this one. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, I believe, was the lawful neutral. Well, dwell on that, listeners. <laughs> that will do it for this episode, truly, this time. And I can be found at at Shelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. Uh, we'd love it if you checked us out over there, but we'd love it even more if you checked out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of reward tiers to check out, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast, you can get a whole bunch of different rewards over there. And even if it's at the $1 level, that helps us a lot. And that gets you the podcast early. So, so check that out. See what tier is right for you. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash pods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd also appreciate if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience in 2020, year three of Some Like It, Scott. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with Blake Lively's first film since A Simple Favor and first film since the birth of her third child. And that will be the rhythm section. Until then, however, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Yeah.